Well, it's my joy to be here with you again at Calvary Bible Church. I appreciate every time I come here. I feel that this is a sister church to the church where I serve at Placerita Bible Church. And I bring you greetings from the church there and from our pastor, uh, Adam Tyson. And it was a joy to have uh, Pastor Hernandez in my classes and also in my uh, discipleship lab. Uh, that's where I first heard his testimony, and it was a thrill to me just to hear what God had done in his life and how God had worked to bring him to seminary. So it's uh, just a real privilege to be here and stand in this pulpit and to be able to preach the word here where he is the pastor. Uh, you know, we talk about service for God, and we're talking about that this morning, ministering the gospel of God. And you're looking at a time of men- missions emphasis And as a missionary, having served in Bangladesh, my wife and I, for 15 years, back in the, from 1981 through 1996, it's uh, uh, constantly on my mind and heart how God requires his people to share the gospel with others and to uh, send missionaries abroad. I just returned Monday from Albania, again there to see the fruit of the preaching of the gospel and uh, that God had faithfully given fruit to missionaries who were willing to go and to take the gospel to another people and be going to India in May and, again, seeing there what God is doing in sometimes a very difficult land. There's uh, many opportunities for us to serve God. And one of the reasons I chose the text before us this morning is because this text spoke very strongly to me, both as I prepared to go to the mission field so many years ago, 37 years ago, actually, that uh, it stayed in my heart for a long time. And it's a text that I go back to repeatedly to be reminded again and again of why we individually and as churches need to be vitally involved in missions around the world and at home. So as we turn to the Word of God this morning, I want to just uh, begin by pointing out a couple of things and then a brief outline of the Epistle to the Romans to give us the setting. And then after I give that brief outline of Romans, then I'll pray again before I get into the main body of the sermon. But as I introduce this text today to you, and as we look at it, we have to uh, look at the question of why missions? Why missions? Why did God take me and my family to Bangladesh? Why might God take you and your family to some country around the world to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why do we as churches send out missionaries? You know, we are not apostles. We're not the Apostle Paul. And as we read about the Apostle Paul, we sometimes think, well, that's Paul. He was able to do that. I cannot. And yet Paul said, be imitators of Christ. He says, as I am imitators, I am an imitator of Christ. We are to imitate him as he is an imitator of Christ. And as we look at that and see Paul, he's willing to go. Look at the trouble he faced. Read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 sometime the list of trials and tribulations he faced. He was stoned and left for dead. He was whipped many times. He was jailed. He was in shipwreck. He uh, spent cold nights sleeping on the ground. He traveled roads in danger of robbers and thieves and uh, highwaymen. Uh, He faced disease. He faced conflict. He faced those who opposed him. And it was a constant reminder to him that wherever he went, if he was to accomplish anything in ministering the gospel of God, it was because of God himself. We do it through the power of God and in his strength, not our own. We are priests. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 tells us that we are priests of God. He has appointed us as priests. What is the job of a priest? We often think that the job of a priest is primarily that of offering sacrifices. And that's partly involved in the ministry of the priests of the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. The sacrifices of the praise of our lips, for example, as the writer of Hebrews talks about. But the primary job of a priest is to preserve and teach the word of God. And that's our task. That is our responsibility. 
So as we approach this text, let's, let's look at its context. What led to Paul coming to this point where he's talking about ministering the gospel of God? He opened this epistle to the Romans in chapter 1 and verses 1 through 17 by letting them know that he was not ashamed of the gospel concerning Jesus Christ and that he was called to share that gospel with other people. And he tells us that we ought not to be ashamed of it and that we ought to be prepared to go. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the grace of God that has been given to all people to the Jew first and then to those who are the Gentiles. And then from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul talks about the need for righteousness because of universal sin. No one can enter the presence of God because of our sin. As Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. So Paul is talking about that there in chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. We have that need. How will that need be met? How will we obtain the righteousness with which we can enter heaven and be in God's presence? So in chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 5, verse 21, he speaks of the righteousness of God in justification by faith. The righteousness of God is in justification by faith. In other words, the righteousness that we need is the righteousness that Jesus Christ supplies when he comes and offers himself as a sacrifice for our sin. He was made to be sin in our place that we might have the righteousness of God. And that righteousness is received by faith and by faith alone. And then in chapter 6 through 8, Paul talks about the righteous, righteousness of God in sanctification. Once we have been saved, justified, forgiven of our sins, have the righteousness of God, we are not just to sit in the pew or sit at home and do nothing. We are to, bu- to be busy about declaring the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. We are to be serving God. We are to use the members of our body as instruments of righteousness in the service of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has sanctified us. He has made us holy. He has set us apart to himself and made us his servants. We are to serve them in that sanctification as holy ones sent forth to declare the holiness of God. And then after chapter 8, Paul talks about the righteousness of God in his dealings with Israel in chapters 9, 10, and 11. He stops for a moment just to say, now let's go back and take a look at what God has done. Let's see what he did with Israel and let's see where Israel went wrong, where they were disobedient to the word of God, where they failed to be servants of God, taking the gospel to other peoples. So much so that the kings of other nations said, we haven't heard of this Messiah. As priests of God, in fact, they were appointed a holy, a holy priesthood, a nation of priests in Exodus chapter 19. There at Mount Sinai, God called them to be priests. They were to take the message elsewhere, and they failed to do it. They were disobedient, so they were removed from the olive tree of God's blessing. And we as a wild olive have been grafted into that olive tree that we might serve him. He talks about one day how Israel will be saved. And how they'd be brought back and be grafted again into the olive tree of his blessing. And then he moves from there in chapter 12 through chapter 15, verse 13, to speak of the righteousness of God in the daily life of believers. Paul has gone through a lot of doctrine up to this point. Now he's coming down to the nitty-gritty of how do we put it to work. So he speaks of six different relationships. Our relationship to God in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Our relationship to the church in chapter 12, verses 3 to 13. Our relationship to society in chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. Our relationship to the state in chapter 13, verses 1 through 14. Our relationship to fellow believers in chapter 14, verses 1 through chapter 15, verse 6. And now we enter that final and sixth relationship about which Paul speaks. And it is our relationship to the gospel of Jesus Christ, starting in Romans chapter 15, verse 7. 
After verse 13, he enters a conclusion. But as he enters the conclusion of this epistle, he continues the same topic he already started in verse 7. That's why we begin in verse 7 and watch the transition as it goes to the conclusion of the book and see what he has to say. So as we think about that, as we now enter that text, let's stop again and pray and ask God to guide us as we study and listen to his word. Father, we thank you and praise you for your great goodness this morning. You are a God of amazing grace. We have had the privilege of singing about that this morning. We have the privilege of being together and fellowshipping as believers who have been saved by your grace. Help us to experience your grace, but help us also to be dispensers of that grace through our service for Jesus Christ. Help us to have others hear of Christ and of the grace gift of God of salvation through what Christ has done. We pray that you'll also help us as individuals to be missions-minded and as churches to be missions-minded and to see that we examine ourselves as to whether or not we should be the ones to go or whether we are the ones to support those who go and pray for them. But in whatever role that you have given us, help us to commit ourselves to that, to serve you fervently and enthusiastically. To your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to first look at God's design, which is the gospel for all. And then we're going to look at Paul's determination, the gospel to all. And lastly, we're going to look at Paul's desire, the gospel to Spain. The gospel for all, the gospel to all, and the gospel to Spain. These three areas, as Paul wraps up the epistle to the Romans, demonstrate his great concern and his desire for the Roman believers. But he also reveals to us what he has committed himself to himself. And when we talk about God's design, the gospel for all, in chapter 15, verses 7 through 13, Paul begins it in verse 7 by talking about a point of practical Christian living. He says, therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. That word accept has the idea of welcoming, of bringing someone into a realm of fellowship, of welcoming them, of being willing to serve them, and having a desire to see them grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. When he says this, accept one another, what he has in mind here is he's instructing the Romans here to realize that the gospel of God, the gospel concerning Jesus Christ, is for all people, so that all people must be welcomed and accepted. He told the Roman church, basically, no matter who comes to you from where, what background they are, who they are, What they have been in the past, no matter what their skin color, no matter what their nationality, no matter what language they speak, if they are in Christ, they are to be welcomed and to receive because the gospel is for all. Accept them all to the glory of God. If we cannot have that kind of welcoming attitude and tone in our own lives, in our churches, how in the world can we be used of God to take the gospel to those outside, to take the gospel to others, to take the gospel to those who speak a different language, who live in a different culture, who look differently than we do, who live differently than we do, people among whom we feel as strangers, we are to welcome because they, when they come to us, they also feel as strangers. We are to be welcoming. This is one of the one another's of Scripture that are emphasized by the Apostle Paul in his uh, epistles. And it's not the only one that we'll see here in this text. We are to accept one another. The gospel message, the gospel being for all, starts with believers living as though every single man, woman, and child, no matter who they are and from what background they are, matter and are welcome in the body of Christ. Secondly, Paul in verses 8 through 9 talks about the promises of God. He says that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. But he goes on with an and, and for the Gentiles. It's both Jew and Gentile. It's for all people to glorify God for his mercy. 
the promises that God gives. The first quote here in verse 9 is from 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 50. It is a, from a poem of David that's repeated in Psalm 18. So Psalm 18, verse 49 says the same thing as 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty, And it conveys the promises here. It says, therefore, I'll give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing your name. The promise of God is fulfilled in this. He said, these are the promises fulfilled not only for Israel, but for the Gentiles that we can praise God together. We praise God together. The Gentile and the Jew, we sing to your name. God promised it would be so. God promised the message would go out to all, not just to Israel. After all, before Israel existed, the gospel was proclaimed then too, from Genesis 3.15 on. Because God wants all of those whom, whom he has made and placed upon this earth to hear the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. Will all be saved? No. He lets us know that too. But that does not mean that we should not take the gospel to all. We have a responsibility. And it's part of the fulfilling of the promises of God even to Israel. That the message that he gave to Israel is a message for all people. And should go into all the world. In addition to the promises there spoken of in verses 8 and 9, we have the prophecies in verses 10, 11, and 12. And Paul goes on to cite more from the Old Testament. He quotes Deuteronomy 32, 43. He quotes Psalm 117, verse 1. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, and chapter 42, verse 4. There's something fascinating about this. The Hebrew people divided the... Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, into three divisions, three parts. The first is the Law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The second was the prophets, and the prophets for them, for them included the former prophets, or the historical prophets, like the books of Judges and Joshua and all the books that we look at as being historical books are included among the prophets as well as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the minor prophets. And then the third section were the writings. The writings included books like the Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Ruth. And, and uh, we look at uh, the, the uh, writings of the Old Testament actually included the books of Chronicles which we find a little bit strange in a way, but remember Chronicles is written very differently than First and Second Kings. First and Second Kings is more or less a straight narrative history, but Chronicles is a theological history. And so it's placed within the writings in the Hebrew Bible. The Chronicles is the last, uh, last books of the Hebrew Bible. Paul quotes from each of the three sections. He quotes, quotes from the law in Deuteronomy. He quotes from the writings in Psalm 117, and he quotes from the prophets in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 42. What's he saying? Basically, he's saying here, look, the testimony of all the prophets of God, all those who received revelation of God, the testimony of the entire Old Testament is this, that the gospel will go to the Gentiles and the Gentiles will be saved and they will be included in the people of God. And you see that repeated over and over. The same message we saw in Samuel and Psalms in verse 9. We see again, rejoice, O Gentiles, in verse 10 from Deuteronomy. We see, praise Lord, all you Gentiles, in verse 11, where we have there Psalm 117. And in verse 12, we have Isaiah saying, there shall come the, the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. It's a message that the entire Old Testament testifies to. So Paul is telling the Romans, he said, look, he said, all of your scriptures testify to this, but how will they hear? How will they hear except someone be sent? Who will go? He ends this section in praise and a prayer in verse 13. And notice how he picks up on the word hope in Isaiah 42, verse 4 there at the end of verse 12. And how he says, now may the God of hope. 
He said the Gentiles hope in him, hope in the servant of God, hope in the servant Jesus Christ. And now may the God of hope, that same hope, fill you, Romans, with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope. Notice the triple emphasis on hope. Three times hope here in a very short short space by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the apostles' prayer. It is a prayer of praise, but it is a prayer for the Romans themselves that they might grasp the hope that God offers in Jesus Christ and that they might abound in it and the joy and peace they experience by the power of the Spirit they will take to others. Thus, we have God's design, according to Paul. A design that God revealed in every part of the Old Testament and now is being revealed in the New. Take the gospel to all. Now we move to Paul's determination. The gospel to all. The gospel is for all. It must then be taken to all. Paul first talks about his priestly duty. He has this firm conviction that it is his priestly duty. It is Paul's duty to take the gospel to all. As a priest of God, he is to share the word of God. And he begins in verses 14 and 15 talking about how the word of God is to edify fellow believers. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. There's another one another. What does that word admonish mean? That means to put someone in mind of something. It's a word used for counseling someone, for comforting someone, for giving them instruction and helping to understand something. You are to admonish one another. You are to teach one another. You are to counsel one another. You are to advise one another. You are to encourage one another. You're able. You have the power. The power of the Holy Spirit, verse 13, gives you that power. And he says, I'm convinced that you yourselves can do this. You're able. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister. And Paul was given a grace from God so that he might be a minister. That word for minister is the idea of a servant. It can be used of a public servant. It can be used of a priestly servant. It can be used of anyone who is dedicated to to the service of others. He says, I am ministering, I'm a minister of Christ, Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I am to edify you, build you up so that you might do the work of the faith. And once I have built you up, there is a responsibility for you and for me, he says, to minister the gospel of God. Paul says he was set apart by the grace of God to the gospel. And he's indicating here that as a priest of God, and since we are all priests of God, that we also ought to be involved in this ministry, that we are to be evangelizing the unbelieving And that the evangelizing of the unbelieving is one of the offerings that we can offer to God. What kind of offering? He says here it's the offering of the Gentiles. He means by that that those who come to Christ then are presented before God as those who are given to God, as those who are an offering to God. You and I are offerings. Each one of us were the offerings of praise to God when someone brought the gospel to us and we accepted that gospel. They acted as priests and we became their offering of praise and thanksgiving back to God just as Paul did with the Gentiles, just as your missionaries do that you send out. When people come to Christ, they recognize, look, this is, yes, I was involved, but it's the work of God. And this people who have come to Christ don't belong to the missionary. They don't belong to us. They belong to God. And they're offered back as praise to God, as thanks to God. This is what God has done. This is a picture that is so precious because 
when we think about priesthood, our minds always go back to the priests of the Old Testament. But remember that all those sacrifices that were offered of those animals has now all been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and all the sacrifices have ended and Jesus Christ has fulfilled it all. And the message is that he has fulfilled it all and forgiveness is available through him by faith. And that all the sacrifices that remained are the sacrifice of the praise of our lips and the praise of God's work in the hearts and minds of others. It's his priestly duty. He's convicted of that. He's convinced of that in his own mind, in his own heart. He declares that his ministry to the Gentiles was a gift of grace from God. Our ministry to others is one of the gifts God gives to us out of his grace. God didn't have to use us. God didn't have to allow us to be used in his ministry to see the great things that he does. He could have done it all by himself, but he chooses in grace unmerited favor to allow us to be used in that process of seeing others come to Jesus Christ. It is a grace gift that we ought to rejoice in. And if you've never experienced that type of joy in seeing someone come to Christ through your own testimony and through the giving of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're missing out on the outcome of the grace of God and the grace gift that he offers to each and every one of us. He talks about how it's not only his priestly duty, but it's in the power of the Holy Spirit that he does so in verses 17 to 22. And here he expresses his commitment. He says here, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. But that boasting is in Christ Jesus, he says there in verse 17. And he goes on to say that he will not presume, he does not dare to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through him. In other words, it's Christ who has done it. And he gives Christ all the glory. And he says, I'm not going to talk about how Christ has worked through someone else, not what he has accomplished through Timothy or through Silas or through any of the other fellow workers that he has. He says, I have to speak about what God has done through me. Some of us can only talk about what God has done through others because we have not allowed God to work through us. Paul's example is that we ought to so serve Christ that we can talk about the things that Christ has done through us to the praise of Christ, to the praise of his glory, not ours. What he has accomplished through me resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. And he says that it was times in his ministry where it was done in the power of signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit. The message he's giving here in verses 17 through the first part of 19 is just this. I will limit myself and my service and what I talk about to Christ and what Christ has done. All glory to Christ. Secondly, he says, I'm not only limited to Christ, I'm limited in my contacts. I set boundaries around what I do. I set priorities in my life that help to bring glory to God. He said, I have opportunity to do many other things, but I limit myself. Look at the last part of verse 19. He says, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum. Illyricum was that area where today you have Slovakia, you have uh, uh, the Czech Republic, you have um, Macedonia, Bosnia, Croatia, Albania. I just returned on Monday from Illyricum. Paul said that was his mission field that he had set a goal for was from Jerusalem to Illyricum. He didn't go to India. He didn't go to Africa. He began in Jerusalem and went to Illyricum. And he says here, that this is an area that he believes God would have him tar- target. And notice it verses 20 and 21, and thus I aspired. The idea is here, he earnestly, earnestly aspired, desired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, 
But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. That's from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15. A text that is just before that beautiful passage of the servant of, of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, described in his sacrifice, giving of his life and dying for our sins in Isaiah chapter 53. At the end of chapter 52, the prophet Isaiah is given by God the revelation that Israel has failed in its commission as priests of God, a nation of priests, and they have not declared the message concerning the Messiah, the servant of the Lord. So much so that they who had no news of him would now see through the preaching of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53. They had not heard They had not seen because Israel had not gone and Israel had not spoken. They were like frozen Alaska rivers, frozen at the mouth, unable to speak, not declaring the glory of God. They were unlike the Thessalonians about whom Paul said, from you the gospel was declared and resounded in all the regions around you. Israel had not been that open with the gospel. And Paul says, I limit myself in these things so that I can make certain the gospel's preached where Christ has not been named. He said, I could go to other places. I could go where other missionaries have gone. I could follow in their footsteps and try to pick up the remnants, the gleanings in the vineyard of the Lord. I could go and just strengthen churches, but I have been called by God. He said, I've been led by God into a ministry where I will go where Christ has never been heard. He had the call of a pioneer missionary, going to a pioneer field, being the first to go with the gospel, not knowing exactly what would happen and how people would greet him. But that was how he determined to limit himself in his ministry. And that's what he did. He also limited himself in the content of what he took to that region. Notice the end of verse 19. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Literally, it's there to fulfill the gospel of Christ. Fulfill the gospel of Christ because the gospel of Christ says that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of all people. And that he rose from the dead that all might come to life in Christ. And in the Great Commission, Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Paul says, I want to fully preach the gospel of Christ. I want to see the gospel of Christ fulfilled in all this area. I want to tell them everything I can about what Christ has done and who Christ is. And I want to complete that. I want to see the fruit that God will give through that, the work that the Spirit of God will work in the hearts of men and women and children to bring them to Christ. This is my goal. This is how I've limited myself. I've limited myself to Christ. I've limited myself in where I go. I've limited myself in the content of what I speak and preach about. And he says, I will also limit myself in my commitments. Verse 22, for this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. (laughs) He says, I do have an excuse for not coming to see you. He's let them know throughout this epistle he wants to see them. He's heard about the Roman people. He's heard about some of the believers already in Rome. And he's wanted to go. He's wanted to go and share the gospel of Christ. He's wanted to go and share what Christ has done elsewhere with them. He wanted to go where the center of the Roman Empire was, to the throne of Caesar himself, to the household of Caesar himself, and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he had not gone yet because he was limited himself in his commitments. He had set priorities. You know, as individuals, we can't go everywhere in the world. We can have a desire to take the gospel to all, but we personally cannot go to all. 
And as churches, we're also limited. We cannot send missionaries into every region, every country of the world. We have to be huge churches to be able to do that. So sometimes we have to set priorities. We have to set target areas that we want to major on. I've known churches who say, look, our goal in our ministry appears to be Europe, and therefore we're going to focus on Europe and send as many missionaries into Europe and its nations as we possibly can. I've heard other churches say, our focus is Asia. Part of it was because they had a lot of Asian believers in the congregation. They said, we have a desire that our own people would hear the gospel of God, whether it's Korea, whether it's Japan, whether it is China, or wherever it might be, India, We want the gospel to go there. We're going to be used as a church to reach the people in those regions. Some churches show the limitation in other fashions. They say, well, our purpose is to go and see churches planted, not just the evangelism, and we're going to focus on sending out all of our missionaries to be involved in church planting. And others say, well, we want to be in the forefront of providing that which those churches need for church planting. They need a Bible. So we're going to focus on Bible translation. And others put the two together, make them work together, say, we want to focus on Bible translators because the missionaries need the word of God to give to people. After all, they're born again by the incorruptible seed of the word of God. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It doesn't come by man's word. It doesn't come by testimony. It doesn't come by example. It doesn't come by argumentations to support the Bible and show the Bible is authentic and authoritative. It comes by the gospel of Jesus Christ in the words of Christ, in the word of God. So how should they hear except one translate the word of God into their language? And then you have something to use in evangelism. You have something to use to plant a church. You have something for the preachers to preach. You have something for the church to follow and to educate their believers in and to edify them and build them up and prepare them to send out to service. These are the things churches need to think about. These are things you and I need to be thinking about. How can we commit ourselves in a rational way that helps us to set specific targets and goals? How can we limit ourselves to have a maximum impact and effect somewhere? That's Paul's commitment in the power of the Spirit. Let's move to the last point. We've seen... God's design, the gospel for all. We sent declared by every part of God's word. We've seen Paul's determination to be used by God and to take that gospel to the area from Jerusalem to Illyricum. We've seen how he limited himself in order to do that, how he set priorities in order to do that. He made choices, good choices, sometimes hard choices, set aside things he could be doing to make certain he did the things that God would have him do. Now we look at his desire, the gospel to Spain. Paul has preached the gospel fully from Jerusalem to Illyricum, three missionary journeys, three times going out with teams of like-minded servants of Christ, to take the gospel. What will he do now? He's fulfilled some of his goals. What's next? Do you just retire and go home and sit and let someone else do the work? I've chosen, I hope in the will of God, not to retire from ministry, but to transition to a different form of ministry to enable myself to spend time overseas with churches and schools to help in training pastors and encourage churches in the service of Christ abroad and in their own training of missionaries and sending out of missionaries. Being a missionary for 15 years in Bangladesh, having taught in seminaries for over 30 years, having preached the Word of God for over 50 years, I just believe that as long as I had the strength and ability to go somewhere still, I wanted the freedom to be able to go anywhere in the world to be of help. And I couldn't do that as a full-time professor at the Master's Seminary. And although it hurt in some ways to leave the classroom because I love teaching so much, yet I'm still teaching. But I'm just teaching in different ways and different students in different parts of the world. And, 
and transitioning into another form of ministry. And when I can no longer do that, I'll have to transition into another form of ministry. And I don't know what that will be. But I would trust that I would be able to be used by God until the day I go home to be with him. And all of us are that way. There's no retiring from serving Christ if we are Christians. We can retire from full-time employment. We can retire from certain aspects of Christian ministry that we can no longer do or we need someone else to do it better. But we never retire from ministry. When we even get confined to our beds, there's still the ministry of prayer. There's the ministry of giving. The ministry of encouraging others, even if they have to come to us to be encouraged. We should never lay it aside. Paul has another desire, a new goal. He says, okay, Jerusalem to Illyricum, I've accomplished it as much as I believe God wants me to. I want to go to Spain. I want to go to the other side of the Mediterranean. I want to go to the farthest point in the Mediterranean world. I want to go to Spain next. So he says, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, I want to see you Romans, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Paul's plan is very clear in verses 23 and 29. What's his plan? First of all, he plans that the Roman church will help him out financially and give him support in verses 23 and 24. He says there to be helped on my way there by you. Paul is raising support for a mission to Spain. He's raising support for his travel to Spain, for his support in Spain. That verb of to help on your way is that which is used in the epistle to Titus, where Paul writing there in Titus chapter 3 and in verse 13 says this, diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. That's what it means to help on the way, so that nothing is lacking for them. There, Paul is telling Titus, hey, you have two men in your midst. Doesn't tell us exactly which Apollos this is or if it's the Apollos we know about already or a new one. He does tell us uh, that uh, Zenos was a lawyer who had evidently come to Christ, and these two are evidently going to serve Christ somewhere else. They're going out, and he says, help them. Make certain they lack nothing. And then John Several years later, several decades later, John in 3 John, verse 6, writes this, and they have testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. So how do you send someone? How do you help someone on their way? You do it in a manner worthy of God. You have God in mind, the glory of God, not to our glory as givers or providers, supporters, but to the glory of God. And a manner worthy of the God we serve. A God who is a God of grace and mercy. A God who is a God of abundance and who is a God of blessing. And who pours out his blessing in great abundance. And to make certain that they have no lack. That's what we're instructed to do for missionaries. And Paul is saying here that he desires that for himself. When he comes to Rome, he says, look, my mission to Rome is to come and to find a way to gain all the support I need to go to Spain. I am asking you, Romans, to help me in the mission to get the gospel to Spain. He targets people and expresses an expectation. He says, you're a church. You're a group of believers. You ought to have a mission vision, and I'm offering you the opportunity to send me. Send me to Spain. Be a part of the work of God and of his grace that takes the gospel to Spain and sees people there saved. He says the financial service is done here in verses 25 to 28 provide an example. But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. 
He said, I've collected money from other believers, other churches, and I'm taking it to Jerusalem to the saints there who are suffering a famine and a drought, and I'm taking there to serve them. These people are an example to you to how to do something for the kingdom, to do something for the vineyard of Christ. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they're indebted to minister to them also in material things. I had the great joy some years ago to witness missionaries in Hong Kong who had served faithfully and suddenly running into great difficulty after they had been forced to return to the United States and were facing fantastic challenges in Alzheimer's where a husband is caring for a dying wife suffering from Alzheimer's and the church that they had started in Hong Kong sent a delegation to the United States to say, you brought the gospel to us. We need to minister to you now. We've come to help you. We're coming to buy the van you need, Mr. Missionary, to care for your wife and get her to and from the doctor. We've come to let you know that we still love you and we thank God for the mission ministry you did in our midst. And we come to encourage you, to comfort you, to share in the ministry. They were paying back and paying forward. This is what Paul is talking about. And in verse 29, he says, I'm not coming to you to get something for nothing. Verse 29, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. He said, I'm coming to share the blessing of Christ with you. I'm coming to give what God would have me give to you that will bring you blessing in Jesus Christ. I'm going to serve in your midst. I'm going to preach the word. I'm going to teach the word in your midst. I'm not coming to sit idly by and just wait for you to support me to Spain. I'm coming to encourage you. I'm coming to help you. I'm coming to teach you. I'm coming to bless you. When your missionaries return home, allow them the privilege of blessing you with their ministries in return for your blessings to them. That's Paul's plan. And then finally, we close with Paul's plea, verses 30 to 33. He wants their prayer support. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me. That's really to agonize together. With me in your prayers to God for me, number one, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. Safety. Pray for safety. Number two, and that my service for Jerusalem may, be pro- may prove acceptable to the saints. Pray for my service, not just my safety. So that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company that I might find solace and satisfaction. Pray for my safety. Pray for my service. Pray for my satisfaction. Pray for a time of rest and refreshment. This is the prayer ministry that you and I can have even at home for our missionaries. And Paul closes his plea here with his own prayer for them. Now the God of peace be with you all. The same peace he talked about in verse 13, he brings up again here, ties it to God who is the giver of all peace. So what must we do in conclusion? Having seen the design of God, the gospel for all, Paul's determination to take the gospel to all, Paul's desire to take the gospel to Spain. What does this mean for us today? What must we do? Am I, are you living for Christ biblically? Are we willing to obey what we see here in this text in Scripture? Do I and do you take our priestly duties seriously as priests of God? Or are we going to be disobedient like Israel was? Paul warned the Romans in chapter 11 of Romans. He says, if you disobey as Israel did, you also will be taken from the tree of his blessing. Am I and are you serving Christ with an intentional commitment? Not accidental, not just happenstance, but intentional. And a commitment that's deep. What is my church's plan for missions? What is your church's plan for missions? 
Am I and are you consistently praying for missions and missionaries? Am I and are you consistently giving to ministries here and abroad? Are we making certain that our missionaries go forth lacking nothing and are sent in a matter in a manner that is worthy of God to God's glory? Brothers and sisters, we have a deep responsibility, but it is a high privilege to serve a glorious Savior with the gospel of God after the pattern of the Apostle Paul. If by this message your heart has been touched, if you believe that you have some need I want you to know that someone will be here at the front after the close of the service to pray with you and to counsel you. Please feel free to come and take advantage of that. What will you do with the word you have heard? What will you do with the example that we've seen in the Apostle Paul? Are we willing to advance the program of the gospel further? Are we willing to go to our Spain? Do we have a program and determined limit of a place where we believe we can be used by God to take the gospel? It may be to neighbors. It may be to family members. It may be to another state. It may be to another nation. But wherever we go... Let's be the servants that follow in the footsteps of Paul who love to follow in the footsteps of Christ. That's bound prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for your wonderful, wonderful grace to us. You have gifted us with this great privilege of sharing in the ministry of the gospel concerning our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are unworthy. We're broken, flawed vessels. But help us to carry the pure gospel message to others and to give it with a determination, with intention and a commitment, with compassion and love and patience and endurance, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.